This is the GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. This is Don Shelby. Thank you very much for being with us. I know a lot is happening in your life right now. As we approach the election, we don't expect it to change your vote, but it might give you an idea of how democracy is working in the environment in which we find ourselves right now. Joining us for the conversation is Joseph Robertson, Global Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Education and founder of Geoversive and Geoversive.net, and Commission Director for the Food System Economics Commission. Myra Jackson helped develop the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and she's a diplomat of the biosphere. She remains a UN representative and focal point on climate change, and she's an expert on harmony with nature. So this podcast, folks, is going to be about our democracy, not knowing as we speak what the outcome of the election is going to be. So the first question I have, Joe, is for you in the realm of sustainability, and it may seem an odd question, but is a democratic republic, is a democracy a sustainable item? That's a really interesting question, Don. On any given day, you can hear people take different views on this. Is democracy a fragile experiment? Is human frailty such that we cannot sustain a democracy? Benjamin Franklin famously said to a woman outside the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, when she asked, what kind of country have you given us? He said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So there's sensitivity about whether democracy is sustainable. But I think that the other approach to that question is the more interesting one, which is, can we be sustainable as societies, as a species, without democratic, republican uh, self-governance? And I don't think we can. I think that we've seen throughout history the consequences of, uh, of systems of government that are too given to concentrated power, too given to control, and don't allow people to make their own knowledge-based, goodwill-driven decisions. And I think what what we're now facing at this moment in, in history in the 21st century is an unprecedented distribution of information across the world to people of, of all varieties, of all backgrounds, of all levels of affluence or lack of it. And our institutions are learning what it is to deal with that. And I think that our best bet is to make sure that as many people as possible have reliable access to good quality evidence-based information and the freedom to make the right choices based on that good and good information. I want to make sure that everyone in our audience understands that when you said a Republican form of government, you were not using the capital R. You were not using party politics as a piece of terminology, but the republic. Because there are people who will argue and argue effectively that we don't have a democracy in the United States, a pure democracy. But we do have a republic that we're bound by law and the law protects the minority as well as the majority. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think it is important to use both terms when we talk about a, a way of governing, uh, but it's also important to understand that in some ways they mean the same thing. You know, democracy is the Greek word that means government by the people, and republic is the Latin word that means that the thing belongs to the people. The government belongs to all of us, but that also means the responsibility belongs to all of us. And I think the way you said it is really important that we have not only the ability to engage in self-government, but we also have laws that make sure that people are actually protected, that people can't misuse that authority. I think when you put all those things together and you say that this is what we mean by a democratic republic, a system of government where laws govern and people own the power, and those who serve in high office work as servants of everyone else, that is the best way for us to achieve an evidence-based rights-based, inclusive, sustainable society. Myra, I am always moved, and I know Joe has written at length about this. Uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg, he had a divided country that he was addressing. And in a serial triplet, because I love the devices of literature, the serial triplet, and it's filled with them, you learn in in grade school to quote the Gettysburg Address by saying, of the people, by the people, and for the people, with the emphasis on the prepositional phrase on the preposition of, by, for. But I prefer to think of Lincoln saying it this way, that that government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I think it changes the nature of how we remember and think of the country that Lincoln was trying to heal. Yes, and yet here we are. We are in a time when we must also include the idea of existence itself. You know, one thing that Abraham Lincoln also said is they're reading from the same Bible and they're praying for the end of the other. And he goes on to talk about that also being the challenge. And today in our current environment, we get a chance to rethink what existence is all about. What allows us to exist is what we are in sovereign relationship with. That which is self-evident is by way of this of which we're a part, which is not the laws of man. It's not the human laws alone that will get us where we need to go. Many of the framers had a feeling for that. It's not just what we can scribe, identify, measure. There's something beyond that that's happening in the world that gives our experience meaning. A democracy allows us to be in conversation with that, I believe. So it's that conversation, that ability for us to be living in the world, connecting with each other, connecting with that which makes our world possible, and taking responsibility. I love that Joe mentioned that, because that's what we must acknowledge, that there is a response needed by people 
to that which we're a part of. And those responsibilities, I feel, are a part of that societal structure that democracy allows for. It occurs to me that Lincoln was trying to say something to a divided country. And that country was divided, as we know through history, north and south, and that the other was the enemy of the other. And it seems to me very clearly that when it comes to Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives, uh, for the first time in my lifetime and, and maybe perhaps the first time in our country's history, that a person in an opposing party holding an opposing view is the enemy. How do we sustain what used to be a more collegial way of approaching the futures of our country and the attitudes of the other if we think that person who has a different idea is our enemy? our sworn enemy. You know, Don, it's interesting that you've, that you've raised it in this way because I was just uh, earlier today looking at these words and I feel like they are, they're very fitting. They're Abraham Lincoln's words from June of 1858. And he talked about coming together to struggle against a common threat. And he said it this way. This was in the resistance to the institution of slavery we did this under the single impulse of resistance to a common danger with every external circumstance against us. Of strange, discordant, and even hostile elements, we gathered from the four winds and formed and fought the battle through under the constant hot fire of a disciplined, proud, and pampered enemy. What he's saying there is not that people of different ideas should be each other's enemies. What he's saying is that people who don't have the same ideas, who are not the same people from the same places with the same references, can come together and form something that is more powerful than a true danger. If you're trying to overcome an institution that had been built into the country, that had been given all of the privilege and power, that had in many ways been allowed to overrule the democracy itself, you need to bring people together from those different perspectives. And I think one of the great things about this moment that we're seeing is how many people from so many different political positions and persuasions are finding themselves in common cause to say that democracy itself is something that we share that is worth defending. The fact that we have different views or different ideas actually is part of the strength of that, of that effort. But it's always struck me as an oddity, critical thinking, critical analysis about uh, our language, uh, the etymology, where it is guaranteed that the right to hold an opinion and express it is guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States and the First Amendment. But so many people believe that the opinion must be respected. Not the right to express it. The opinion must be respected. Therefore, through some kind of odd magic, 
in the last 20 years, the opinion has risen to the level of material fact. I must say it bothers me. So Don, if I could, I I would love to say a word here about opinion. I I used to have this experience where I would ask students, 18-year-old college freshmen, what the word opinion means. And almost everyone would have some version of the following. Well, that means you get to think whatever you want. And the thing is, that's not what opinion is. It's not that you get to think whatever you want and you get to get away with it and no one can question you. Everyone else can also share what they think. And you have some responsibility, even in an offhanded opinion, to be gathering evidence, putting thoughts together, sharing your personal qualities, letting people relate to you, uh, offering some wisdom as to how the world can work. And if your opinions are indefensible by any of those standards, then they are not sacred. They are not something that should stand untested. Your right to experiment with thought, to seek knowledge, to express yourself, those things should be protected. But the idea that you would protect a bad idea at the expense of everybody else's rights, including the right to know, the right to know what's real, the right to know how the world works, the right to know, uh, you know, what science can tell us about the danger of a particular threat, an environmental threat, a health threat, a security threat. The idea that the sanctity of your personal random thought would have more weight than all of those rights of everyone else is just an indefensible idea. And obviously it's contrary to democracy. Myra, is there a way to heal the country? Because it seems to me that the country is not just at odds on opinion, but there is what amounts to hatred? We're seeing the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of white supremacy. Is that allowed in a democracy? Is that allowed in a democracy? You know, when I sit with uh, those realities, you know, you're talking to a black woman in the United States of America. All of my history of my people here has been in face of that kind of mentality. And yet, we recognize democracy. We recognize and value it. And so while on the way, we may still have some of those ideas, I think it's the recommitment to staying on the course towards the promise and the ideals of what is possible that is worthwhile. It is worth our effort. What's important is that, in my view, very, very real in my view, is that we always create a space where people can drop ideas of hatred of limitation, of bias, and join in. And I have seen this. I have witnessed this transformation. And democratic systems allow for those kinds of transformations to happen. But what really makes, if we are talking about still having a democracy present, 
that's viable, then we have many who care about democracy. And I'll tell you something. I want to be really clear with all of you. I have seen more democratic action, care, and activity in the streets in these months than I have all my life, all my 62 years. Because this is different than when John Lewis and Martin walked the streets. Yes, there were others that were joining in. But this one, the people who have gathered to walk in the streets on behalf of not only democracy, but Black Lives Matter and other other folk. To me, this is what democracy allows for, and it's worth us all getting in and not giving up. I can't get John Lewis out of my head these days, nor do I want to, because I think he's really found a residence in my heart. He speaks to this moment. If I think I'm faltering and think it's not worthwhile, I remember the way he lived and what he embodied. And it is the embodied nature of knowing that which you're a part and knowing that that is the cue and the guidance for how you'll walk in the world and how you will treat and meet the other. So in conclusion, Benjamin Franklin is right when it comes to the words sustainability and all the other words that are used to um, emphasize that notion. What kind of government do you have? A republic, madam, if you can keep it. That means sustainability, if we can keep it. So we know now, election day is two days from now. You may be listening to this after the election. We hope that this conversation has meant something to you and that you take it to heart. If you have any questions and you would like to post an idea or a correction, go to ask at geoversive.net. Joseph Robertson and Myra Jackson have been with us today. Thank you very much both for being with us. Thank you, Don. And I want to thank everybody who's listening and also all of you who are doing your part to make sure that we are a self-governing society. Um, if I could, I just want to share a word from John Lewis, who said, we must use our time and our space on this little planet that we call Earth to make a lasting contribution, to leave it a little better than we found it. And now that need is greater than ever before. And I'll have to make it really quick to the listening audience. That, you know, recently Snoop dropped some lyrics and he said, drop it like it's hot. And he meant your ballot. So let's do it. This has been Geoversive Earth Intelligence. I'm Don Shelby. Please join us next week.